Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who like books. I'm Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 37 Unfair Protest. Well, hello. Hello, my fabulous listeners. To say to you today that I am wrung out is such a deep and abiding understatement that I, I'm i really impressed that I'm still vertical and doing this. And it's only 8.09 p.m., so, so I'm tired. Um, since last I spoke to you, my husband has returned from Paris with gifts for everyone, which was very sweet of him. And they did have a lovely time with their dad. But um, let's see, we saw him Saturday and Sunday, and then Sunday night he fled to fly off to California, and then he came home at one in the morning Tuesday night, and then last night, Wednesday night, he went on a red eye to New York. I'm really, really not good at being a single mom. And in the meantime, in all of this maelstrom, We've met with the neurologist. We know that our son has ADHD and Tourette's syndrome. Not that he's, you know, saying vile things spontaneously, but that when he's stressed, he gets a a facial tick. He starts to blink really hard. So we can pretty much judge when he's stressed. And um, whatever it is that's causing the Tourette's, the same part of his brain is also malfunctioning when it comes to reading. So we have a really smart kid with the vocabulary of a college student who only wants to learn things like science and math and history and books and all this stuff, and he can't read. So life has been very frustrating and and made even more frustrating by the fact that the baby, the almost three-year-old, I know that's not a baby, but God, I keep defaulting to saying that, and I've really got to stop that or he's going to kill me when he's 15. My younger son um, just started at a little Montessori school that's around the corner from the house, which I thought would be better and easier for me to get him to and blah, blah, blah. And this week, without you know consulting me, they decided to start potty training him. <laughs> I'm tired. I'm really tired. But I do have some really interesting stuff for you today. First, I have uh, Jen Minnes. Um, God, Jen, I hope I'm pronouncing your last name right. All of a sudden, I'm looking at it going, mm, maybe that's not how I pronounce it. Jen's the really fabulous artist who we've clicked to before, and I'm going to send more links today to some of her artwork. She's the one that sent me the spectacular Ukrainian eggs, and she told me what they're really called, which is also kind of exciting because, sadly, I took a class in in these things, and... Um, and nobody ever told me what they're called. And now I'm realizing that my printout with the actual name didn't come out of the printer. So you're just going to have to read the website because I don't want to butcher the name the way that I would. Um, But they really are gorgeous. And uh, I'll also list the name of the stylus, which she also sent me. It's always good to know the facts, I think. Um, So Jen sent me that. There's also a link I have to go find it again, this link from uh, YouTube on a guy who does this really amazing silkworm weaving. And I think those of you who've been listening forever probably remember when I went to the Sheep and Wool Festival right at the beginning of Pride and Prejudice. I think I mentioned that my son and I saw a woman demonstrate how to do um, silkworm cocoon unwinding stuff. Well, it's on the video, so you can actually see it. The only thing that doesn't come across on the video is how god-awful the stuff smells, and it really does. I mean, it's it's the chemical of, you know, whatever glue the animal uses to keep the fibers together into a cocoon shape, but it's also, you know, dead pupa smell because there's a dead silkworm moth inside the cocoon that you then 
boil. How they come to be dead, I do not know. I don't know if they gas them. I don't know what, if it's like a mini Auschwitz moment. I have no idea. Uh, I don't know that I really want to know. But I will tell you that silk, silk fibers, even just, you know, three or four of them strung together is crazy strong. Like ridiculous, crazy strong. So I'll put that link up for you. I also have some pictures from Annalise's fibers of spindles and distaffs. And there's quite a bit of discussion about whether all of the pictures on this page are of women spinning flax. It does look like they're all spinning flax. But some women on one of my groups is saying, mm, no, not so much. I think some of them are actually wool. Because while, while flax was fairly common, wool was more common. I almost said commoner. Ah, I'm tired. Um, I also have a very silly site to link you to. It is uh, Stitchy McYarn Pants. And I don't know if you've seen this woman's site before or not. I left her a comment and she wrote back to me. And she is just as hilarious in conversation as she is on her own website. And um, it's kind of along the lines of you knit what? That website I linked to forever ago as well. Um, but she... She's just got a different take on it, and it's it's fun. It's very fun. I also got a really sweet email from Rachel, who was ever so impressed that I know Peter Sagal, and asked, um, is he as funny in person as he is on the show? And the answer is, sadly, yes. The man is a comic genius. He's just a wonderful guy. So if you haven't ever listened to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on a podcast or on a live NPR feed, please do because um, because he's wonderful, and the show's really quite funny. Um, I also got uh, an emergency email from Amy in Chicago who couldn't find the philosophy podcast. I now am going to try and find it again, and if I can, I will link to it. I also found another podcast this week, um, that I was really excited by, actually a whole series of them. If you go into iTunes and search for learn Italian or learn French or learn German or learn Spanish, there are all sorts of podcasts that are very short, very brief little podcasts that teach you phrases or sentences or words every day. So you can learn a language on your mp3 player or on your computer very low stress repeated as much as you need and you know you can learn enough language to find out where the bathroom is and how to get to the vatican so i'm all for it i think it's pretty cool and um and an excellent excellent use for podcasts which i, I don't know i don't know if you've heard this i don't know if i've talked about this teachers especially obviously high school teachers, but also middle school teachers are starting to use podcasts as a way to teach the kids. And my husband, who um, he said he, he went through public school in the 70s right in front of all of the budget cuts. So he was the last one to get really innovative math or really innovative science or really innovative art or music. And the way that math was taught to him up through freshman year of high school, no, it may have even been including freshman year of high school, was um, he was given a lecture. You know, the teacher did the lecture. They started to do the practice, but they had cassette tapes of little stations that they could go to so that as they were practicing, they could listen to the explanation of that particular math step over and over and over and over and over and over and over again until it made sense to them. And in one respect, I think this is spectacular because sometimes you just need to hear it a couple of times. And in another respect, I'm a little frustrated by it because I was always the kid who needed to hear it differently. That whatever it was the teacher said, eh, it didn't click. I needed to hear a different angle on it, which is one of the reasons why I've had such a good time working um, working for the company that I work for because we have math people on staff and they're all really creative, interesting math people who kind of can talk math theory, like the why 
part of it, which is what I was always interested in. I'm lousy at computation. And I mean, I understand the point of computation, but uh, for whatever reason, I'm lousy at it. But the math theory stuff, I always thought was really interesting. And in fact, I was just watching Proof the other night uh, with Gwyneth Paltrow. I'd seen it on stage with... Um, uh, <laughs> now I can't even remember her real name because we always make fun of it. Mary Louise Parker. We always call her Mary Louise Sarah Jessica Parker. Mary Louise Parker, who was brilliant on stage. And um, I have to say, Gwyneth did a really nice job. She's very unlike herself. So if you haven't seen Proof, nice little math movie. And I'd be very interested to hear from our mathematician listeners, because I know you're out there now. I would love to know if you've seen proof, is the whole math thing real? Like, do they talk math the way math people actually talk math? Or is it all just a sham and they don't know what they're doing? I'd be interested to know that. I also have to say thank you to Amy in Chicago who quotes Ted Allen of um, uh, the Queer Eye TV show, that life is too short to drink cheap booze. And I have to say the way I feel today, that should be my mantra. It should be tattooed on my forehead. I am going to go have a drink when I'm done. That being said, I got a very, very important email this week from Julie. And Julie, Julie and I have been emailing back and forth with each other for months. And I really found this to be wonderful. Julie's another knitter and we've talked about that stuff. And oh, by the way, I finished my socks. They almost fit my sister, but the Wildfoot yarn that I used leaked dye like an insane thing, as though writ dye were used and all of the cotton dye that wasn't attached to the wool just bled out for, I don't know, 20 minutes that I was rinsing the socks. And then the socks were huge huge, stretched out, freaky huge. So, I mean, huge for me. My sister's three shoe sizes smaller than me. I knit them for her and suddenly the socks are bigger than my foot. So I washed them, I dried them. Now they fit and they stopped bleeding. But the whole wild foot yarn thing kind of freaked me out. I did part of the pattern in baby all, which was very nice and didn't bleed. So all things are better now. I'm working on another pair of socks. And tonight when I'm done and I have the drink in my hand, I am going to go back and work on the heavy duty cables on the hood of my rogue hoodie. So that being said, Julie emailed me um, to give me some lip, <laughs> which is one of the things that I love. It's very strange for me to do this podcast because I'm I'm used to being a teacher in a classroom, and one of the benefits of having a classroom full of really interesting kids, which is who I had when I was teaching in, in New York especially, and, and creative writing in California, I had a similar group, is that real smart kids will call you on stuff. If they think you're full of it, they'll go, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. What about this part of the book? Or what about that factor? Or what about this thing? And that's when you get at some really interesting stuff in the text. I am not one of those relativist people. I don't, and I talked about this a little bit last week, you can Jack and Jill books to death. You can pretend to find stuff in just about any book. And of course, we all bring our own biases to the table. And um, Julie called me on that and said, and I'm going to read her email with her permission. I like your commentary, but it is very clear that you are not believing much of what that poor little governess is saying. Keeping in mind that I am an episode behind here, so you may have already addressed this. For one thing, you keep reminding us that everyone says what good kids they are, these are. However, both of the everyone are prejudiced in Miles' favor and are completely disregarding the evidence of the only presumably unbiased character judge we have seen, which would be the headmaster who expelled Miles and wrote a letter about it. This is not to say that Miles did not go out of his way to play a joke on the governess, but it is very easy for me to believe that if he were trained by the unsavory character that is now haunting the grounds, that he would use that joke as classic misdirection to distract her. Well, I wrote back to Julie immediately and said, thank you. Gosh, that's, 
I, you know, I'm doing this kind of in a vacuum and to not hear uh, book stuff back from the listeners, I just kind of blithely continue on saying what I'm thinking without anyone to say, yeah, but, and this yeah, but from Julie is really important. And once I read that, I thought, you know, I've been reading commentary on the web, but I need to Google from a different perspective. Because lit crit, literary criticism is kind of hard to find on the internet. You really have to either AltaVista or Google very specifically to find legitimate criticism. Otherwise, what you come up with is all of the, the cheater websites, all of the places where you can download an essay on Henry James, The Turn of the Screw, written by some schmo who had to go on a cheater website to get their own paper. So I I finally found some stuff that I thought was fascinating. And it's stuff from Henry James himself. Evidently, when the book came out, um, it caused a sensation. And people almost immediately started trying to figure out what was going on, you know, what was really going on in the story. Are the ghosts real? Are they not? Are they this? Are they that? And I've mentioned before that Henry James's father was a Swedenborgian and um, a spiritualist. And he and evidently his brother were very involved in studying uh, psychic occurrences, I guess is the way to put it, psychic stuff. And, and so this idea of a spectral presence that doesn't actually do anything fits in very much with the research that they were involved in. Because, you know, Quint and Jessel, provided that they are actual apparitions of these dead people, they don't do anything, but they infuse the narrative with a sense or with the presence of evil. And that's where Henry James is creating all this tension. And that's absolutely true. And it brought up something to my mind, which is that perception is everything. You know, if you've ever had an argument with your husband or your boyfriend or whatever, or even just a good friend, and they've said, well, you said blah, 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 blah. And you say, yeah, but I didn't mean that. It, it kind of doesn't matter because the way they perceived it is their reality. And if they took it the wrong way, if you were unclear in your intentions, even if you didn't mean it, you probably do owe them an apology because somehow something got twisted up. And their reality is that they were hurt. And, and so even if the ghosts aren't physically real, the governess's perception of this reality is crucial. And James said something else very interesting about the book. He called it in a later edition, um, a fairy tale, pure and simple. Well, that seems kind of straightforward at the beginning. You know, oh, it's a fairy tale. It's not real. But in fairy tales, evil is reality. You know, the wolf in Little Red Riding Hood, you can't say, well, it's not a real wolf. I mean, a real wolf wouldn't get up and talk. N no, the point of the story is the wolf is real. And the wolf eats grandma. And the wolf wants to eat red. So... I think the 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 connection to the fairy tale is very interesting. Uh, we tend to dismiss fairy tales, and I've already mentioned before Bruno Bettelheim's book, The Uses of Enchantment, where he talks about what what fairy tales are really all about and what what an important role they play in in child development and um, and the growth of the psyche. You know that as a child, you kind of need those good and evil stories where good wins or at least where good learns a lesson in order to start to, to make sense of uh, an otherwise very chaotic and gray world, you know, morally ambiguous world. Um, he also talked about this book as a return to the romantic. And for any of you who've read um, Percy Bysshe Shelley or um, Byron Keats, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which we've talked about in the past, Romantic, capital R, doesn't mean a Hallmark card. The, the old romantic movement was fraught with supernatural elements. And um, I really think the connection between romantic poetry and fiction cannot be 
removed from the area of the Gothic, um, you know, moving from Frankenstein into Poe. Um, they're all so tightly connected. And so for him to bring that up, I also thought was interesting because the, the romantics were going for an emotional effect. They wanted to have a specific effect upon you, one of terror, one of horror, one of outrage, one of awe at you know the beauty of their description, whatever. And he's clearly working on building a psychological response. And of course, all of this, just like with Shakespeare, is pre-Freudian blah 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 This is before everybody watched Oprah. And, you know, one of the beauties of going and watching a play like Hamlet or Romeo and Juliet is that Shakespeare nails the psychology. And here you've got Henry James doing the same thing. It is absolutely valid to read this book with the ghosts being real. And it is also absolutely valid to say, no, the story is a moral or a religious allegory and the ghosts are symbolic ghosts if they're ghosts at all. Or the governess is a mess, she's projecting, and all of her sexual ambiguity and frustration for her boss is being projected upon the children and this bizarro relationship between the children and Quint and Jessel. All of that being said, what I would like you to do is go back to last episode and listen to chapter 14 before you listen to the chapters today. In chapter 14, which I think starts around, oh, I wrote it in the show notes, 46 minutes into the episode, 47 minutes into the episode. Um, it's on the show notes, so you can you can take a look and, and see what it, what's up. Um, Go back and listen with an unprejudiced eye. Erase everything that I've said from from your memory about uh, about the governess being the problem, and think about what Miles is doing. Also, think about Quint and Jessel. We we do know that she must have seen Quint in the tower. She described him to Mrs. Gross, and Mrs. Gross confirmed who that was. Since then, who knows? But for a little while, believe her and listen to what happens today. Because if you haven't been scared yet, what goes on between her and Miles today is going to scare you. Listen to the way he speaks to her. Because even if Quint is not haunting him, Quint messed with him when they were hanging out. Listen to how he speaks to a woman of his station who is older than himself. He has no business talking to her this way. And there's actual language that he uses when he's being manipulative that just sounds like an adult. Um, also, um, there was something else. Oh, uh, at the end, um, the end of today's chapters, there, there's some pretty scary specific action. And you're going to want to listen to it over and over again and try and parse out what really happens and what could have caused this to happen. Because you have a couple of options. Also, I, I think one of the um, the reviewers, uh, his name was Goddard, one of the things that he said that I think really nails the two views you can have of the story is either the kids saw the ghosts and are influenced by the ghosts, and therefore this is a story of corruptible childhood. Children can be corrupted. Or... The kids didn't see her. They are not being influenced by these spirits. And therefore, this is a story of incorruptible childhood. And then you could tag on to that, you know, corruptible adulthood. It's the adult that has the problem. But but either way, you know, it's, it's not the bad seed. These are not children who were born bad or evil. These are either children who are being corrupted 
or children who can't be corrupted. And if you look at that as kind of a larger symbolic context, um, this is a paradigm through which people see reality. There are people who will believe the worst in everyone. There are people who will believe the best in everyone. And when you're confronted with a story like this, I think it's really interesting that you you do need to wrestle with those larger questions. What do you really think of these people? Do you really think these children are capable of doing some of this stuff on their own? Ooh, and listen to what happens between the governess and Flora. Scary moment, especially if you're a parent or if you've ever babysat a child, there's a scary moment in there. The screw is absolutely turning, and we are on the edge of The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. Chapter 15 The business was practically settled from the moment I never followed him. It was a pitiful surrender to agitation, but my being aware of this had somehow no power to restore me. I only sat there on my tomb and read into what my little friend had said to me, the fullness of its meaning. By the time I had grasped the whole, of which I had also embraced, for absence, the pretext that I was ashamed to offer my pupils, and the rest of the congregation, such an example of delay. What I said to myself, above all, was that Miles had got something out of me, and that the proof of it, for him, would be just this awkward collapse. He had got out of me that there was something I was much afraid of, and that he should probably be able to make use of my fear to gain, for his own purpose, more freedom. My fear was of having to deal with the intolerable question of the grounds of his dismissal from school, for that was really but the question of the horrors gathered behind. That his uncle should arrive to treat with me of these things was a solution that, strictly speaking, I ought now to have desired to bring on. But I could so little face the ugliness and the pain of it that I simply procrastinated and lived from hand to mouth. The boy, to my deep discomposure, was immensely in the right, was in a position to say to me, Either you clear up with my guardian the mystery of this interruption of my studies, or you cease to expect me to lead with you a life that's so unnatural for a boy. What was so unnatural for the particular boy I was concerned with was this sudden revelation of a consciousness and a plan. That was what really overcame me, what prevented my going in. I walked round the church, hesitating, hovering. I reflected that I had already, with him, hurt myself beyond repair. Therefore I could patch up nothing, and it was too extreme an effort to squeeze beside him into the pew. He would be so much more sure than ever to pass his arm into mine and make me sit there for an hour in close, silent contact with his commentary on our talk. For the first minute since his arrival I wanted to get away from him. As I paused beneath the high east window, and listened to the sounds of worship. I was taken with an impulse that might master me, I felt, completely should I give it the least encouragement. I might easily put an end to my predicament by getting away altogether. Here was my chance. There was no one to stop me. I could give the whole thing up, turn my back and retreat. It was only a question of hurrying again, for a few preparations to the house which the attendants at church, of so many of the servants, would practically have left unoccupied. No one, in short, could blame me if I should just drive desperately off. What was it to get away, if I got away only till dinner? That would be in a couple of hours. 
at the end of which I had the acute provision my little pupils would play at innocent wonder about my non-appearance in their train. What did you do, you naughty bad thing? Why in the world to worry us so, and take our thoughts off, too? Don't you know? Did you desert us at the very door? I couldn't meet such questions, nor, as they asked them, their false little lovely eyes. Yes, it was all so exactly what I should have to meet that, as the prospect grew sharp to me, I at last let myself go. I got, so far as the immediate moment was concerned, away. I came straight out of the churchyard, and, thinking hard, retraced my steps through the park. It seemed to me that by the time I reached the house, I had made up my mind I would fly. The Sunday stillness, both of the approaches and of the interior, in which I met no one, fairly excited me with a sense of opportunity. Were I to get off quickly, this way, I should get off without a scene, without a word. My quickness would have to be remarkable however, and the question of a conveyance was the great one to settle. Tormented in the hall, with difficulties and obstacles, I remember sinking down at the foot of the staircase, suddenly collapsing there on the lowest step, and then, with a revulsion, recalling that it was exactly where more than a month before, in the darkness of night, and just so bowed with evil things. I had seen the spectre of the most horrible of women. At this I was able to straighten myself. I went the rest of the way up. I made, in my bewilderment, for the schoolroom, where there were objects belonging to me that I should have to take. But I opened the door to find again, in a flash, my eyes unsealed. In the presence of what I saw, I reeled straight back upon my resistance, seated at my own table, in clear noonday light. I saw a person whom, without my previous experience, I should have taken at the first blush for some housemaid who might have stayed at home to look after the place, and who, availing herself of rare relief from observation, and of the schoolroom table and my pens, ink, and paper, had applied herself to the considerable effort of a letter to her sweetheart. There was an effort in the way that, while her arms rested on the table, her hands with evident weariness supported her head. But at the moment I took this in, I had already become aware that, in spite of my entrance, her attitude strangely persisted. Then it was, with the very act of its announcing itself, that her identity flared up in a change of posture. She rose, not as if she had heard me, but with an indescribable grand melancholy of indifference and detachment. And, within a dozen feet of me, stood there as my vile predecessor, dishonored and tragic. She was all before me. But even as I fixed and, for memory, secured it, the awful image passed away. Dark as midnight in her black dress, her haggard beauty and her unutterable woe, she had looked at me long enough to appear to say that her right to sit at my table was as good as mine to sit at hers. While these instants lasted, indeed, I had the extraordinary chill of feeling that it was I who was the intruder. It was as a wild protest against it that, actually addressing her, you terrible, miserable woman, I heard myself break into a sound that, by the open door, rang through the long passage and the empty house. She looked at me 
as if she heard me. But I had recovered myself and cleared the air. There was nothing in the room the next minute but the sunshine and a sense that I must stay. End of Chapter 15 Chapter 16 I had so perfectly expected that the return of my pupils would be marked by a demonstration, that I was freshly upset at having to take into account that they were dumb about my absence. Instead of gaily denouncing and caressing me, they made no allusion to my having failed them, and I was left, for the time, on perceiving that she too said nothing, to study Mrs. Gross's odd face. I did this to such purpose that I made sure they had in some way bribed her to silence, a silence that, however, I would engage to break down on the first private opportunity. This opportunity came before tea. I secured five minutes with her in the housekeeper's room, where, in the twilight, I made a smell of lately baked bread, but with the place all swept and garnished, I found her sitting in pained placidity before the fire. So I see her still. So I see her best, facing the flame from her straight chair in the dusky shining room, a large clean image of the put-away, of drawers closed and locked, and rest without a remedy. Oh, yes, they asked me to say nothing, and to please them, so long as they were there. Of course I promised. But what had happened to you? I only went with you for the walk, I said. I had then come back to meet a friend. She showed her surprise. A friend? You? Oh, yes, I have a couple, I laughed. But did the children give you a reason? For not alluding to your leaving us? Yes. They said you would like it better. Do you like it better? My face had made her rueful. No, I like it worse. But after an instant I added, Did they say why I should like it better? No, Master Miles only said, We must do nothing but what she likes. I wish indeed he would. And what did Flora say? Miss Flora was too sweet. She said, Oh, of course, of course. And I said the same. I thought a moment. You were too sweet. Too, I can hear you all, but nonetheless. Between Miles and me, it's now all out. All out? My companion stared. But what, miss? Everything. It doesn't matter. I've made up my mind. I came home, my dear, I went on, for a talk with Miss Jessel. I had by this time formed the habit of having Mrs. Gross literally well in hand in advance of my sounding that note, so that even now, as she bravely blinked under the signal of my word, I could keep her comparatively firm. A talk? Do you mean she spoke? It came to that. I found her on my return in the schoolroom. And what did she say? I can hear the good woman still, and the candor of her stupefaction, that she suffers the torments. It was this, of a truth, that made her, as she filled out my picture, gape. Do you mean, she faltered, of the lost? Of the lost. Of the damned. And that's why. To share them. I faltered myself with the horror of it. But my companion with less imagination kept me up. To share them? 
She wants Flora. Mrs. Gross might, as I gave it to her, fairly have fallen away from me had I not been prepared. I still held her there. To show I was. As I've told you, however, it doesn't matter. Because you've made up your mind? But to what? To everything. And what do you call everything? Why, sending for their uncle. Oh, miss, in pity do, my friend broke out. Ah, but I will, I will. I see it's the only way. What's out, as I told you, with Miles, is that if he thinks I'm afraid to, and has ideas of what he gains by that, he shall see he's mistaken. Yes, yes, his uncle shall have it here from me on the spot. And before the boy himself, if necessary, that if I'm to be reproached with having done nothing again about more school. Yes, miss, my companion pressed me. Well, there's that awful reason. There were now clearly so many of these for my poor colleague that she was excusable for being vague. But, uh, which? Why, the letter from his old place. You'll show it to the master? I ought to have done so on the instant. Oh, no, said Mrs. Gross with decision. I'll put it before him, I went on inexorably that I can't undertake to work the question on behalf of a child who has been expelled. For we've never in the least known what, Mrs. Gross declared. For wickedness, for what else? When he's so clever and beautiful and perfect, is he stupid? Is he untidy? Is he infirm? Is he ill-natured? He's exquisite. So it can be only that, and that would open up the whole thing. After all, I said, it's their uncle's fault if he left here such people. He didn't really in the least know them. The fault's mine. She had turned quite pale. Well, you shan't suffer, I answered. The children shan't, she emphatically returned. I was silent a while. We looked at each other. Then what am I to tell him? You needn't tell him anything. I'll tell him. I measured this. Do you mean you'll write? Remembering she couldn't, I caught myself up. How do you communicate? I tell the bailiff he writes. And should you like him to write our story? My question had a sarcastic force that I had not fully intended, and it made her, after a moment, inconsequently break down. The tears were again in her eyes. Ah, miss, you write. Well, tonight. I at last answered, and on this we separated. End of Chapter 16 Chapter 17 I went so far in the evening as to make a beginning. The weather had changed back. A great wind was abroad. And beneath the lamp in my room, with floor at peace beside me, I sat for a long time before a blank sheet of paper and listened to the lash of the rain and the batter of the gusts. Finally I went out, taking a candle. I crossed the passage and listened a minute at Miles's door. What, under my endless obsession, I had been impelled to listen for was some betrayal of his not being at rest. And I presently caught one but not in the form I had expected. His voice tinkled out. 
I say, you there, come in. It was a gaiety in the gloom. I went in with my light and found him in bed, very wide awake, but very much at his ease. Well, what are you up to? he asked with a grace of sociability, in which it occurred to me that Mrs. Gross, had she been present, might have looked in vain for proof that anything was out. I stood over him with my candle. How did you know I was there? Why, of course I heard you. Did you fancy you made no noise? You're like a troop of cavalry. He beautifully laughed. Then you weren't asleep? Not much. I lie awake and think. I had put my candle, designedly a short way off, and then, as he held out his friendly old hand to me, had sat down on the edge of his bed. What is it, I asked, that you think of? What in the world, my dear, but you? Ah, uh, the pride I take in your appreciation doesn't insist on that. I had so far rather you slept. Well, I think also, you know, of this queer business of ours. I marked the coolness of his firm little hand. Of what queer business, Miles? Why, the way you bring me up, and all the rest. I fairly held my breath a minute, and even from my glimmering taper there was light enough to show how he smiled up at me from his pillow. What do you mean by all the rest? Oh, you know, you know. I could say nothing for a minute, though I felt, as I held his hand and our eyes continued to meet, that my silence had all the air of admitting his charge, and that nothing in the whole world of reality was perhaps at that moment so fabulous as our actual relation. Certainly you shall go back to school, I said, if it be that that troubles you. But not to the old place. We must find another. Better. How could I know it did trouble you, this question, when you never told me so, never spoke of it at all? His clear, listening face, framed in its smooth whiteness, made him for the minute as appealing as some wistful patient in a children's hospital, and I would have given, as the resemblance came to me, all I possessed on earth, really to be the nurse or the sister of charity, might have helped to cure him. Well, even as it was, I perhaps might help. Do you know... You've never said a word to me about your school. I mean the old one. Never mentioned it in any way. He seemed to wonder. He smiled with the same loveliness. But he clearly gained time. He waited. He called for guidance. Haven't I? It wasn't for me to help him. It was for the thing I had met. Something in his tone and the expression of his face, as I got this from him, set my heart aching with such a pang as it had never yet known. So unutterably touching was it to see his little brain puzzled and his little resources taxed to play under the spell laid on him, a part of innocence and consistency. No, never, from the hour you came back. You've never mentioned to me one of your masters, one of your comrades, nor the least little thing that ever happened to you at school. Never, little Miles, no, never have you given me an inkling of anything that may have happened there. Therefore you can fancy how much I'm in the dark. Until you came out that way, this morning you had... Since the first hour I saw you, scarce even made a reference to anything in your previous life. You seemed so perfectly to accept the present. It was extraordinary how my absolute conviction of his secret precocity 
or whatever I might call the poison of an influence that I dared but half to phrase, made him, in spite of the faint breath of his inward trouble, appear as accessible as an older person, imposed him almost as an intellectual equal. I thought you wanted to go on as you are. It struck me that at this he just faintly colored. He gave, at any rate, like a convalescent slightly fatigued, a languid shake of his head. I don't. I don't. I want to get away. You're tired of Bly? Oh, no, I like Bly. Well, then. Oh, you know what a boy wants. I felt that I didn't know so well as Miles, and I took temporary refuge. You want to go to your uncle? Again, at this, his sweet, ironic face, he made a movement on the pillow. Ah, you can't get off with that. I was silent a little, and it was I, now, I think, who changed color. My dear, I don't want to get off. You can't, even if you do. You can't, you can't. He lay beautifully staring. My uncle must come down, and you must completely settle things. If we do, I returned with some spirit, you may be sure it will be to take you quite away. Well, don't you understand that that's exactly what I'm working for? You'll have to tell him about the way you've let it all drop. You'll have to tell him a tremendous lot. The exultation with which he uttered this helped me somehow, for the instant, to meet him rather more. And how much will you, Miles, have to tell him? There are things he'll ask you. He turned it over. Very likely. But what things? The things you've never told me. To make up his mind what to do with you. He can't send you back. Oh, I don't want to go back, he broke in. I want a new field. He said it with admirable serenity, with positive, unimpeachable gaiety. And doubtless it was that very note that most evoked for me the poignancy, the unnatural, childish tragedy of his probable reappearance at the end of three months with all this bravado and still more dishonor. It overwhelmed me now that I should never be able to bear that and it made me let myself go. I threw myself upon him, and in the tenderness of my pity, I embraced him. Dear little Miles, dear little Miles. My face was close to his, and he let me kiss him, simply taking it with indulgent good humor. Well, old lady, is there nothing, nothing at all that you want to tell me? He turned off a little, facing round toward the wall, and holding up his hand to look at, as one had seen sick children look. I've told you. I told you this morning. Oh, I was sorry for him. That you just want me not to worry you. He looked round at me now, as if in recognition of my understanding him. Then, ever so gently, to let me alone he replied. There was even a singular little dignity in it, something that made me release him, yet, when I had slowly risen, linger beside him. God knows I never wished to harass him, but I felt that merely, at this, to turn my back on him was to abandon, or, to put it more truly, to lose him. I've just begun a letter to your uncle, I said. Well, then, finish it. I waited a minute. What happened before? He gazed up at me again. Before what? Before you came back. And before you went away. For some time he was silent, but he continued to meet my eyes. What happened? It made me the sound of the words in which it seemed to me that I caught for the very first time a small faint quaver of consenting consciousness 
it made me drop on my knees beside the bed and seize once more the chance of possessing him. Dear little Miles, dear little Miles, if you knew how I want to help you, it's only that, it's nothing but that, and I'd rather die than give you a pain or do you a wrong. I'd rather die than hurt a hair of you. Dear little Miles. Oh, I brought it out now, even if I should go too far. I just want you to help me to save you. But I knew in a moment after this that I had gone too far. The answer to my appeal was instantaneous, but it came in the form of an extraordinary blast and chill, a gust of frozen air, and a shake of the room as great as if, in the wild wind, the casement had crashed in. The boy gave a loud, high shriek, which, lost in the rest of the shock of sound, might have seemed indistinctly, though I was so close to him, a note either of jubilation or of terror. I jumped to my feet again and was conscious of darkness. So for a moment we remained, while I stared about me, and saw that the drawn curtains were unstirred and the window tight. Why, the candle's out! I then cried. It was I who blew it, dear, said Miles. End of chapter 17 That's what I'm talking about, eh? <laughs> yeah, innocent little Miles blowing out the camera and screaming at the same time. I tell you what. So, yeah, the screw is turning. And, uh, Miss Jessel sitting at the governess's desk, acting like it's her own, because, of course, it was. There, there are also some pretty interesting things going on when the, um, when the governess sees them. You know, it's like all light drains out of the room and the room gets cold and stuff. And that's fairly uh, consistent with, you know, paranormal... Well, if you believe any of the paranormal stuff that people have reported, then that's... That's what Henry James is talking about. And, of course, he he did do a lot of research, paranormal research and stuff like that when um, when he and his brother were, were working in that field. So, I don't know. It's one of the wonderful things about this book. Wonderful, wonderful, painfully twisted ambiguity. So, I don't want to prejudice you against the governess because, for all I know, those ghosts are real. And uh, today's ep uh, chapter's did a pretty good job of um, putting that back out there into sharp relief, uh, especially because Miles is sums up with him. And uh, whether he's being influenced by Quint alive or dead, Quint certainly messed with him. Um, that's pretty much it for the week. I was going to see if I could find that, that name for the eggs, but I'm I'm having trouble with the computer. I don't know if you heard the breaks earlier in before I um, started the chapters, but the computer just stopped recording a number of times and I had to kick it back in and I think you'll probably hear it snap, crackle, and pop. Anyway, I hope you have a spectacular week. God knows I hope I have a better week. And um, let me know what you're thinking about the book again because uh i like getting that feedback thanks for all the emails and uh wonderful supportive emails this week and um i'll get those show notes up for you and i'll talk to you next week have a good one and uh go back and listen to those chapters again <laughs> i'm going to talk to you next week have a good one bye Thank you for listening to Craftlet. If you are a new listener, you may be interested to know that there are a few new ways to connect with the show. One is we have a dedicated iPhone, iTouch, Android app where you can listen to all of the shows. That's right, all of them on your device, right there in your ear. Or you can listen to the most recent real-time episodes via Stitcher Radio, which is an app that they have created for every platform of smartphone you can find. 
And if you become a subscriber supporter, which is new, and you have to visit the show notes at craftlit.com, you can receive in your email inbox exclusive audio just for subscribing supporters to Craftlit and just the books. Find out more by visiting craftlit.com and looking in the upper right-hand corner sidebar of the show notes. Thank you for your support. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.